Dr. Dale on Quail, bringing you the latest news and views about all things quail in Texas. Brought to you by the Rolling Plains Quail Research Foundation, preserving the wild quail hunting heritage of Texas for this and future generations. Major support for this podcast comes from Gordian Sons Outfitters. Hello, everyone, and welcome to this month's podcast of Dr. Dale on Quail. I'm Gary Joyner with the Texas Farm Bureau. Great to have you with us. We hope you've been enjoying our series of podcasts, and this one will be a good one. We're, we're talking about a time of year that we know is tough on quail, winter in Texas. Help us to do that is our, always our good guest, Dr. Dale Rollins. Hello, Dale. Good afternoon, Gary. How are you? What is it about winter that's tough on quail? It, it's got to be something that as managers, as quail enthusiasts, uh, we need to be aware of. Well, first, Gary, I'd ask you, if you were a quail, who would one of your favorite country and western singers be? It's a good question. I don't know. Merle Haggard. Merle. If we make it through December, everything's going to be all right, I know. That's got to be paramount to a, a Bob White or a blue quail about this time of the year. Winter is a bottleneck. Whether or not you're raising cow calves or whether or not you're uh, trying to grow quail, winter is one of the bottlenecks, just naturally induced. Uh, it's the point of lowest seed availability. It's the time of our coldest weather, therefore our highest energy demands. Our cover has melted, no pun intended, or tends to melt throughout the winter with the uh, weathering and so forth. We've got a rougher neighborhood. We've got a lot of hawks and so forth that are down here we didn't have to deal with in the, during the summertime. A lot of things impinge upon our quail's ability to survive, uh, and that begins to really hit home about Christmas time or about December. Anything we can do about it? Are there certain things from a management standpoint that we can do to help? Absolutely. Uh, and we'll get into some of those in just a minute. Let me just say, again, that cold weather, one of the things that really stresses us out is, and again, if you and I were out there when a blue norther came in, and it's dropped down to 15 degrees, and you and I are out there in short sleeve shirts, we're going to be cold as the dickens, and uh, we're probably going to be oblivious to doing anything other than just trying to stay warm. That ain't a good situation for quail. Um, it's going to cause us to have to forage for a longer amount of time. The seed availability is not what it was during early November. The grasshoppers aren't out there anymore. Anytime we have to forage longer, we're more vulnerable to our particular suite of enemies. Largely, we're talking about hawks in this standpoint. If we happen to get a snow, then we're standing against a white background and we're really visible yes. to our enemies at that point in time. So several things can happen to us here. And uh, The quail can handle the colder temperatures and so forth to a degree uh, really incredibly well. Now, once we, if we get north of Kansas, all of a sudden it just begins to get too much snow, too much cold. If we've had areas that have probably had 30, 40 inches or more snow, your, your quail are probably really going to take it on the chin in those situations. And we can experience that in the Texas pan, though. I've been on places uh, that had 50 and 60 inches of snowfall back in about 2001 or two that mm -hmm. basically lost the bulk of their bob whites. It took right? them several years to recover. So I'm just saying that the weather conditions really make it a tough time. I want to also challenge you and, and listeners as you're hunting this year, if you ever hunt and it begins to sleet, so you begin to hear those ice pellets yes. fall on your pickup, quit what you're doing, get in your pickup, and just drive the roads, two-track roads or the county roads, the dirt roads. You're going to witness a feeding frenzy among those quail. Is that right? Why is that? My opinion, my speculation, something about those ice pellets basically telling quail, 
this could get really bad, boys. Probably the worst scenario they face is an ice storm and then snow on top of the ice. That basically erases all the food supply. I was at Lubbock, Texas as a student in 1983. January of 1983, it snowed 17 inches. Didn't drift 17 inches. It snowed 17 inches. I remember. And that snow stayed on the ground for over three weeks. And I used to make a trip out to what they call the Range and Wildlife Area right there north of the med school because I was always curious about the quail. The quail the first week handled it just fine. By week three, you could walk over and pick them up, and this, their breast would be the size of a sparrow's breast. So they'd literally starve to death over that period of time. Their energy demands are just so high, they can't get to anything. They don't have the fat reserves to get them through. A fat quail has enough fat for three or four days of that kind of condition. So, again, a really, a really tough situation. Certain things the birds will do as a, as a group or individually to uh, offset that? Are there certain dynamics they can work with? There's some things they can do. For example, if, if you've been cruising the roads, again, that's the way we hunted in Oklahoma as kids, where we cruise the dirt roads and so forth. And if it's 10 degrees outside, you see a covey of quail that's in a ball no bigger than a soccer ball. And I've seen a covey that must have had 25 in it, no bigger than a soccer ball like that. So they're literally tails in, heads out, that's their roof circle, and they're scrunched up as tightly as they can be to conserve some body heat like that. So that's one of the behavioral responses that they can do. Another thing they'll do is they'll fluff their feathers up. Now it's question time, Gary. How would that provide any thermal relief? Uh, air circulation? Is it letting more air circulate around Meh. the body? No. Just the opposite of that. It's just like you having a goose down jacket on. It's trapping that uh, those air molecules in there as insulation. And so when they fluff their feathers up like that, they're basically trapping air in there and making it, quote unquote, dead air, which serves as, as a form of insulation like that. So that's another uh, ad adaptation that quail have uh, to get them through that kind of weather. And then they select for probably the best thermal cover. Now we don't talk a lot about thermal cover, and when we do in Texas, we're typically talking about something that's providing them shade when it's 110 degrees out there, something like a dense hackberry or in South Texas, a granjeno bush, something like that. But in the wintertime, and again, this will be basically north of I-20. We don't have this kind of winter weather typically south of I-20 to the degree that it's going to affect our quail. But north I-20, we certainly can. Again, the tip, especially during February or whatever, we have a blizzard come through, ice storm. Those quail are going to be selecting the areas on the landscape that are breaking the wind, or serving as a break for the wind, which brings me to the point of windbreaks, which ought to be the topic of one of our podcasts one of these days, because when I was a kid, windbreaks, tree rows, shelter belts, those were so common throughout the Great Plains, and uh, pretty sad commentary on our landscape that most of those have been knocked out for the sake of another bushel of wheat or whatever the case might be, but those were really critical habitats for a lot of things, but quail especially, I miss those. Another point. Um, but we find things like plum thickets. And again, a quail are only six inches tall, so when they get, if the wind's blowing 30 miles an hour of the north and they're on the south side of a dense plum thicket, they're getting some relief from yes. that cold wind. Be like me and you, we're not gonna stand up on the north side of it, we're gonna stand on the south side of the barn to get out of the wind. That wind is, uh, is really driving that operative temperature down. Uh, trees like junipers, we don't often talk very highly about juniper cedar trees relative to quail management. We got better things we think. A juniper tree is great thermal cover for quail during the winter. It's just that type of foliage, they can get in there, they're out of sight. 
Uh, probably won't be any snowfall or very little snowfall underneath the juniper tree like that. So that's one of the better types of quail houses, if you will, during the wintertime, the taller grasses. Doesn't always have to be woody cover. If you go to western Kansas, you see hardly any woody cover, but you find bob whites. So they're able to use some of the taller grasses, the big blue stem, Indian grass, and provide, again, at quail's eye level, that's provided good wind cover or wind break for those quail. And then, as I mentioned a while ago, the, the absence of the wind breaks, shelter belts, uh, kind of makes me sad to think about that. But they'll be in the sunlight and out of the wind. And that's, that's a key point, because when you're out feeding your cattle, they're going to be on the south side of that turn row or whatever. You're going to see them sitting there. You're going to be feeding your cattle, probably right there. So one of the things you can do that uh, really didn't cost much, doesn't cost you anything, really, if you're feeding them a uh, high-gear kind of a hay, something that has some milo in it or even wheat straw, something that's got seeds in it, feed that adjacent to that plum thicket kind of on the south side. You'll be helping your quail, and your cows will probably appreciate it too. But don't feed it out there 200 yards out in the open. Keep it close to some kind of on the south side of some kind of windbreak to where the quail can get some benefit from it like that. That's a great tip. You wouldn't think about uh, where you're feeding the cattle, helping the quail that's nearby, but do it in that same area on the on the sunny side, those quail are going to benefit. Other things that we can be doing, uh, maybe from a management standpoint, uh, during this winter time to help the quail. If you're serious about quail, and I, the reason I ask if you, I mean, everybody on this podcast is, is concerned about quail, but if you're seriously concerned about quail, and you're serious enough to want to be into a supplemental feeding program, winter's a good time for that to to be, a, uh, to be a good investment. I've done some work with uh, the Quail Tech Alliance up on the, a ranch up in uh, King County and basically demonstrated significantly higher winter survival, especially as it relates to 14 inches of snow. Now, if it, if it wasn't a, rain, if it wasn't a bad, bad snow year, they might not have seen that benefit, but in a year where they had significant snowfall, the, the areas that were fed regularly had higher survival. We've seen that same thing on blue quail out in uh, New Mexico. So again, my, we'll focus some other times specifically on the supplemental feeding, but my point has always been my recommendation. If you want to feed and you can afford to feed, then feed. Okay. Feeding is effective. It's just expensive almost regardless of how you do it. Now, we tried something, uh, before I get into that, we typically feed Milo, okay. and I often tell people that Milo's like cocaine to a quail. They, they want it, they're gonna to come to it. If you've got Milo out there, they're gonna find it. We, we use quail feeders, fixed quail feeders, barrels here on the research ranch in four pastures, and uh, those quail know where they're at. Some people say, aha, but so do the hawks. Yes. Maybe. We're doing a study right now where we're looking at, with GPS points, looking at where all the mortalities have occurred on the research ranch since 2010. We have a waypoint. We know where the feeders are. And so the student will be looking in a GIS, Geographic Information System context. Can we buffer around those barrel quail feeders 25, 50, and 100 yards and see an increased number of mortalities? If so, that'll indicate that the feeders were probably negative, but otherwise it'll indicate that that wasn't that big an issue. Uh, wheat, you can also feed wheat. Uh, you can typically get wheat cheaper than you can Milo. Uh, you can feed corn. Quail, okay. quail can swallow corn. Uh, anytime you start feeding corn, uh, there's a little bit of concern that you uh, have it tested for aflatoxins, which are a mycotoxin, and it's typically more common in corn than it is in milo, than it is in wheat. All of those can have aflatoxins, but it's typically an issue with corn that was produced in a hot, humid environment, southeast Texas. 
if you get your corn from the high plains or whatever generally not an issue do you broadcast it uh, the quail tech uh, study used a uh, broadcast cedar kind of thing that to pull behind a pickup basically throws it off the side of the road into the vegetation the premise being that the quail aren't out in the road uh, they're also somewhere along this line but maybe a hawk doesn't know exactly where they're at uh, with that being the premise there but uh, they also point out that you don't wait till the blizzard starts you need to have those birds conditioned to the fact that seeds available they're kind of coming to it you don't just wait till uh, the forecast says we're going to get 18 inches of snow tomorrow I, uh, I want to point out one people are always looking for different uh, better mouse traps if you will and back in 1991 I worked with a colleague of mine, Ed Houston, there at the AM Center in San Angelo. <clears throat> I told him Ed was a ruminant nutritionist. And I said, Ed, could we put Milo into range cubes? Well, absolutely. Put whole Milo in range cubes. And I said, where's it going to go? Well, most of it is going to go undigested through that cow. And it's going to be deposited in that cow patty. So that's what I call a patty melt quail feeder. <laughs> so we, we, we experimented with that a little bit, put 300 pounds of whole milo per ton of range cubes. And then the beauty of this is, Gary, two things really. One is, if indeed hawks are attracted to a fixed feeder point, well, those quail are, I mean, those cattle are pooping all across the pasture. Yes. So it'd be tough for a hawk to be able to say, I'm going to attack the quail right there. And so, uh, that the seed will be in those cow patties, and lit, you will be amazed, I was amazed, at just how quickly those quail learn that there's milo in those cow patties, and how quickly they tear those cow patties up really? to get to the milo. I don't know if warm milo has any more nutritive value than a cold milo, but rarely did those cow patties get firm before the quail had learned that and dissect that. We thought we'd sit game cameras on some of those cow patties to document how well the quail would dig into them kind of thing. Now, that seems odd, or maybe you say, I'd never do that. But if you ever look at quail crops on grazed range, and it has, they have mesquite beans in them, okay. you got to ask yourself, how did quail get those mesquite beans out of that bean? How did they get the beans out of the pod? If you've ever tried to do that, it has this starchy substance all over it. I challenge you to get a slick bean out of a mesquite bean pod. It's tough to do. Well, many of the times they're digging those out of cow patties, and that was the impetus for this patty mount quail feeder because I knew that quail would had taken those mesquite beans out of those cow pies, and they're just as slick and shiny as they can be because they pass right through the cow. And so we did the same thing with the milo. So it does work. I've always been anxious to try that in a larger context. So if any of y'all out there are listening, and you want to feed your cattle or feed your cows uh, range cubes with 300 pounds. Oh, Milo, I'd be interested in following up that with you. And again, we call that the patty melt quail feeder. Think Aldo Leopold had that in mind when he <laughs> talked about management practices? Uh, well, innovation, you know, innovation. Um, there are some other things that on, on the landscape that, you, again, during this time of the weather, weather, and with the winter weather and the snowfall and so forth, you've got to appreciate are those plants that are producing seeds that are available above snow level. That might be two inches or it might be 12 inches or 22 inches. So begin to think about what kind of plants are producing edible seeds or fruits to quail. And the one that sticks out here in the Rome Plains is hackberry. Netleaf hackberry, a little scrubby plant out mm -hmm. there that occurs all across West Texas. A lot of people don't give it much thought. It's, it's not a very a pretty tree. It's a little shrub, scrubby shrub kind of thing. 
that it produces little red fruits on it, reddish purple, really Aggie maroon, I guess, if it won't be appropriate. Aggie maroon fruits, and those fruits will hang in that tree throughout March. And I've seen quail on more than one occasion when there's snow on the ground. They'll be up in that tree harvesting those hackberry fruits out of the trees. So, again, that's important not only to quail, but to various birds and so forth that need energy like that. Another example of that is the tasahia, what we call pencil cactus. A jumping pear is another name, turkey pear. It's a kind of a nasty pear to be around in that it gets in you all the time, but it has this little red fruit, red tuna. Some people call it Christmas cactus because it'd be bright red out there. And if you find that, if you're in blue quail range especially, sometimes you'll see browse lines on that tasahia about that high to where those blues have taken the fruits off at the lower levels kind of thing. And those fruits are going to stay out there most of the winter. And those blue quail will jump up in there and eat those too. So again, some of those plants, just like we talked about earlier, a weed is a plant whose virtues have yet to be discovered. Sometimes you got to appreciate. They might not be, they may be important, might only be for two days during the year, but they're very important during those two days. Many days during the hunting season, Dr. Dale, could be in a very wintry setting. Uh, are there certain practices that as hunters we should be mindful of um, as we approach those times of year? Well, I think you need to be a little bit more considerate, uh, if you will. And, and don't take this as that Rollins has gone soft and done hunt quail. That ain't the case. I'm just saying that you need to be more mindful. Again, appreciate, judge with heightened awareness some of the conditions and the state that these birds are in at this time of year. They're at, they're at a tough time. I mean, if, if we go into early February now, instead of weighing 170 grams, if they're weighing 155, weight loss is not a good thing for a quail like that. So we got to keep in mind that we want, we want to have them well-nourished, again, available, various seeds and so forth, available, taking care of their cover. But we also got to think about what are we about to do to them if we turn our dogs loose and hunt them. We're adding a stressor. No doubt about it. Whether we shoot a bird out there, anytime we make those birds flush and have to regroup, they begin to call back right at dark. We've stressed them. And so they've got to get back together because the quail that doesn't is not able to rejoin the covey, if it gets down to 15 degrees at night, he's at a distinct disadvantage. That covey does have some thermal advantages, especially if you get down below 20 degrees or so. So we want them to be able to regroup or recovey before it gets dark. From a hunting standpoint, that brings up two things. One is we need to be mindful that they need to recover before dark. So I'd recommend you don't hunt them within an hour of dark. Give them that, just say, white flag. Uh, we're not going to hunt you after this point in time to allow those birds ample time to recover before darkness hits them. The other thing, and we talked about this um, a little bit, and it's kind of a mathematical idea of, additive mortality versus compensatory mortality. One of them being that hunting is really not an issue. One of them is, are you sure hunting's not an issue? If, it's, if hunting becomes additive in the way that it's operating, then we gotta be more concerned about it. And so as we're hunting during late winter, our tendency is for the hunting to become more additive in nature than compensatory. We're taking birds out of the population that would have survived to be breeders had we not shot them. So we, we just have, that's a philosophical question. I don't have an easy answer for you, but the principle is in, in effect. And so we gotta be careful about that as well. We sit here today at the Rolling Plains Quail Research Ranch near Roby. Do you and your team here, Dr. Dale, 
approach winter research in a different way? Are there certain studies that are specific because it is winter, because of the unique nature of that time of year? To this point, we really haven't. Uh, most of our long-term research here involves radio telemetry. And so we will have, we, we believe our most valuable data set is that, is, are those radio marked hens available from May 1 until the end of uh, September, our nesting season. We want to know how prolific have they been. After that, like when we trap in November, we'll put radios on roosters, by and large, because our roosters are more expendable to us. Our, our hens are our most valuable component out there, and they're our weakest link in many times. And I might just add, hens are more vulnerable to hunting than our roosters. They are. Don't ask me why. Juveniles are more vulnerable than adults. That makes sense. Hens of both age classes are more vulnerable than roosters. Whether they fly slower, whether they flush differently, I don't know, but studies have shown that. So, no, we haven't spent that much time uh, or that many resources looking at winter. We, we monitor the survival of the quail, and we're always doing what we call quail CSI, a crime scene investigation, because, again, we want to know if we've had 100 mortalities over the course of the year, what percentage of those were by mammals, what percentage of those were by raptors or other factors. And we're often concerned, you know, I mean, again, we, we'll be able to, the, the technicians will go out every other day, and is old 151.222 still alive? Beep, beep, beep. That's a live signal. Beep, beep, beep. That's a dead signal. So we follow up on, on that dead signal and do quail CSI, trying to discern who done it. And again, in the long haul, uh, raptors account for about 30% of our mortalities. Mammals account for about 40%. 30% we just can't make an educated guess on. It's unknown. And how much of a quail population can carry over from one year to the next? I suspect this winter time of year has a big impact on the number of birds that live the next time. Absolutely. Especially, I'm going to say from February the 15th to about March 15th for our area, for our latitude, is the gauntlet. And it's a tough gauntlet. Like I said, you get your winter extremes. Food availability is, is reduced from what it was earlier in the year. Uh, we've got a bad population, we've got a bad neighborhood in that we've got more uh, uh, wintering raptors and so forth. Uh, there's less resources for the various varmints to eat. So again, everything's beginning to say that quail would really be tasty right now. A lot of things impinging on that population. And again, that's why it serves as a bottleneck or a uh, gauntlet for our quail population. The more of those birds we can carry through for another month, the better we are. Because if we can get them past April 15th, We'd like to think that they're in the breeder population. We define that as May 1, but obviously if we get them through mid-April and they begin to break up and disperse, we've got a decent chance of getting them into the breeding population. There are resources out there for the landowners, for folks who may be interested in, in trying to improve their quail sustainability through these winter months. Uh, certain tools or websites out there, Dr. Dale, you might point people towards? Well, I would say uh, certainly our research, I mean our... Um, Quail Research Ranch website, quailresearch.org. Uh, there are others out there in some of the some of the states north of us, Kansas, Nebraska. They often have some good resources because this is more of a deadly issue for their quail abundance. It's an irregular problem for us. We're, yeah, and, and even less so in South Texas. Again, you don't. You know, I remember Gary back. I don't know, 15 years ago, Victoria got like 12 inches of snow on uh, Christmas Eve or whatever, but, but that is really a, a once in a, who knows, 100 year kind of event. 
Uh, for us, again, from Roby North, we can ex right here at Roby, I expect to have maybe five days that I won't have snow on the ground. It doesn't last very long. If I were to go to Pampa, then I expect 25 days, and so it becomes much more of a concern. So look for some of those uh, resources on the Internet. I don't have any of them just right at the top of my head, but look for some of those from Oklahoma State or from uh, Kansas and Missouri, and they're going to be talking about more thermal conditions, winter management, because, again, that's more of an issue for them than typically is for us. Will the bob whites and the blue quail react similarly to wintry conditions, or are their birds uh, unique in how they adapt and how they can survive? Oh, by and large, I'd say pretty similarly. Um, blue quail have a bit of an advantage. We talked about when we talked about blue quail, we said they're about a half ounce larger. The larger the body size, the better the thermodynamics of that critter are. That's why. Uh, quail, when they used to have quail up in uh, Minnesota and Wisconsin, those quail might have weighed 200 grams. Our quail weigh 170, South Texas 155. So larger body size is adaptive in cold weather situations. That's not something we can manage, but uh, it's just one of the things. But blue quail and bobwhites are going to behave pretty similarly. Again, both uh, very well adapted to supplemental feeding regimes if you want to do that. And I will say that this ranch that I often quote out in southeastern New Mexico they use the curry quail feeders that we've talked about, the barrel quail feeders. But where I put the holes right here around the bottom on our quail feeders, they had those holes, and then they had some up 14 inches high. Why? Because they may have a foot of snow. And those quail, even with a foot of snow, they can still get to those upper holes. So some of those kinds of considerations uh, you might think about again. As you begin to think about the trials and tribulations and dilemmas of a quail, it ought to spur you into thinking, how can I be the best advocate for quail. The quail uh, supplemental feeding uh, elements, are those pre-mixed? Are those things you can buy commercially or is that something that you as a landowner or quail manager just make yourself? Well, generally you're just talking about feeding milo, wheat, or corn. You're not trying to feed protein during the winter. They need energy. Protein is secondary. And so milo, wheat, corn, all of those are 9 to 10% protein, which isn't that great, but they're high energy. And that's what a quail needs to, in order to maintain its energy reserves and maintain its constant body temperature. Uh, as we talked about the patty melt quail feeder, again, if any of you are interested in trying that, well, uh, get hold of me and I got some ideas that I want to see and I can tell you how to get those uh, produced at your local feed store. The birds, Dr. Dale, that are harvested in wintry time, uh, would you have interest in getting any of those birds for necropsy purposes? We're still very interested um, in doing eyeworm analyses because we're, uh, we're doing this through a grant from Park City's quail for the last two seasons, we've solicited heads of quail. We don't ask for you to keep the breast and cook them up. We just want the heads. And if you send those to us, we will dissect those for eyeworms because we're curious. Not that we, we know the eyeworms are there some years. What our question is, is Fisher County always the hot spot for eyeworms or is other areas, is it gonna be southwestern Oklahoma or wherever? So we're, we're soliciting heads throughout the rolling plains so we can um, have a technician dissect those. And what you'll get back from is this report saying, your quail had an average of 11 eyeworms. The overall mean was 19 eyeworms. Here's what your peers' properties look like in terms of parasite loads. Would it be possible from a research standpoint to have a seasonal impact in which eyeworms are more prevalent during certain times of the year? Uh, possibly. Um, 
the eye worms go into uh, what, what's called diapause, where they quit laying eggs. I don't know the exact timing of this, but I'm going to say during late summer. And so uh, I don't know if we have, if anybody had those data, it'd be Dr. Kendall up at the Wildlife Toxicology Lab. I don't know what the seasonal occurrence of eye worms is. We've only looked at them really during the hunting season. Well, I'll take that back. Our initial dabbing into this effort was back in 2010, 2012. We looked at birds in October and August, so two different months there across 35 different counties. And so, as I recall, the October birds had more eyeworms than the August ones, which basically tells me they had time to accumulate more eyeworms. An adult quail will tend to have more eyeworms than a juvenile quail because they've had time to accumulate more eyeworms over time. You've always talked about Merle Haggard being a, a great artist and a great uh, musician related to quail. Why is that? Well, again, he's uh, Okie from Muskogee. I'm an Okie too. And uh, I, I mean, I'm, I've always been a fan of Merle Haggard's. And uh, what's, I guess what's topical at this point in time is, and I would hope that most quail hunters feel like this, the roots of my raisin run deep. And uh, if the roots of your raisin are in quail hunting, as deeply as mine, you want to do everything that you can, just like our mission statement for the Rolling Plains Quail Research Ranch, to preserve Texas wild quail hunting heritage for this and future generations. Thank you, Dr. Dale. Great way to end this month's program and podcast. Uh, winter is a tough time for quail in Texas. We hope you've learned some things today that what we can do as quail hunters, enthusiasts, students of quail, landowners, uh, what we can do to help and what we can do to understand the dynamics of the wintertime on Texas quail. We hope you enjoyed the program and we look forward to visiting with you next month on topics of interest. Go to quailresearch.org for more details about what we talked about today and other topics. Special thanks to the Rolling Plains Quail Research Ranch and all that they do for wild quail in Texas. I'm Gary Joyner with the Texas Farm Bureau. Look forward to talking to you next time. Support from Gordian Sons Outfitters makes Dr. Dale on quail possible. Gordian Sons, the finest hunting and fly fishing shop to be found. Find out more at GordianSons.com.